Welcome to the SAP Concur Conversations podcast. Each episode, we sit down with industry experts, visionaries, and leaders as they share what it takes to build forward-thinking spend and travel programs. Our goal is to get you thinking differently about how your organization spends money. I'm your host, Jean Dian. I'm the vice president of the value experience team here at SAP Concur, and my team works with our customers to drive positive business outcomes based on data-driven insights. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Miles Druckmann of International SOS, and we're going to explore what it takes to empower a resilient workforce, the critical role that duty of care plays, and how workforce resilience drives business resilience. So Miles, I'm really excited to have you here as a guest today. You've got a really wide-ranging and impressive background. So to start, would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very excited to be here too. So I'm Dr. Miles Druckmann. I'm actually a Canadian physician but done a lot of my work uh, internationally. So I was involved in kind of setting up some of the first medical clinics in the former Soviet Union in Moscow in the early 90s. Then I was in Beijing, China, running operations there. And then they moved me back to the US and I was based in Philly and I'm now on the West Coast. My role, I'm a senior vice president and global medical director. And what I do is I work with a lot of the major organizations on how they manage the health of their employees and travelers globally, and been a little bit techie on our health innovation side too. So I get involved in some of the technology work, you know, and best practices in those areas as well. So very excited to talk about a subject very close to, I think, both our hearts, which is, you know, how to how to protect and, and uh, prepare people when they're they're traveling. Yep. All right. I'm going to dive in because this is a, a big topic and I want to make sure we have enough time to, to chat about it. So uh, I'm just going to preface this by saying I work for a travel and expense company and in transparency, SAP does use international SOS for duty of care with our travelers. And I personally have experienced the service and have nothing but praise to say about it. But I also know that the duty of care prospect doesn't just happen from travel perspective. And I want to take that step backwards because there's a building block to ensure that we're resilient when we travel. And that's starting with that workforce resiliency with a true cornerstone to employee wellness, regardless of location or job or anything else. So how do we as organizations empower our workforce when it comes to just the standard practice, that foundational element of resiliency? Yeah, I think it's a great point because, you know, uh, travelers are people too, right? So Mm -hmm. we're, you know, we just happen to be in a different place. So I think the key that we've seen typically, you know, now coming out of a pandemic or hopefully we're out of the pandemic, we might have a little couple of hiccups before we leave, but there's been a lot of stress and, and really hardship that we've all faced over the last couple of years. And this is a global phenomena. It's not just a U.S. centric type of thing. And we have obviously struggled with disease, but we've struggled with how we uh, move and how we're how we access our daily living activities. We've had to change the way we've done work. Many of us are working from home now instead of coming into work. So there's been a lot of disruption 
in our daily lives over the last couple of years. And it's going to take us a, a number of months, even years, to really realize how dramatic it has been. And some of us have, have, you know, gone through this in flying colors. Others of us, you know, have really struggled with, you know, coping with all of these changes. And, you know, adapting to changes is always a very difficult thing. And that affects, you know, not just your normal daily living, but also how you do your work, how effective you are at your work. And so we've seen, you know, a lot of challenges for people having to make those uh, adaptations. And also understanding that the business environment is changing too. So there's been quite a few layoffs. There's been a lot of adjustments to, you know, the workforce and people doing double jobs. And 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 with all of this underlying, you know, stress, we're now starting to travel again. And travel is a third level of stress that places people. So how we can help ourselves as well as our, our staff manage ourselves better, be more resilient to these stresses that occur, because we're not going to be able to you get rid of stress. It's always going to be there. But how we cope with it uh, is very important. And how we can mitigate unnecessary stresses, you know, in the workplace is something that we're seeing a lot of organizations focusing on today. That's an important point for me, because I've been, as a manager, thinking about how I manage my team. And I think about how stressed everybody is, how sensitive they are, how fragile they are right now, even though they're very strong people and they do their jobs well. Can you talk a little bit about the influence that managers do have on employees and the impact that that brings to the workplace and even to the personal life? Uh, Absolutely. So this has been a subject of some scrutiny recently and some research you know, on on the effects managers have on their employees, they have the same level of impact on the mental health of their employees as people's spouses. So you're probably spending almost as much time <laughs> and influence uh, with your manager as you are with your your partner, and so that's pretty powerful. And what we're also seeing is that you know about. of managers are doing a very good job. Their employees are happy. They're, you know, things are going okay. 40% there are challenges, but they're fixable, which means that those managers with some, some training, some understanding of, you know, how they could do things better could really limit unnecessary stress on their employees. And then unfortunately, there's 20% that probably shouldn't be managers, <laughs> regardless of what they're doing. And, and some people are just not cut out to be a manager. And that's not a bad thing. It's it's a, it's often an ego thing, right, that you have to have people under you to be valuable. But uh, we're seeing a lot of people that are what we call, you know, individual contributors that can be very, very important in organizations and are very important. So, but managing people is a, very, is a challenge. It's a skill. And what we're seeing, particularly when it comes to burnout, is that this concept of burnout is 100% work-related. So if you take away the work-related stress that they're in, they're no longer depressed, they're no longer anxious, they don't need to take medications, you know. So I think we're seeing a lot of organizations focus on how can we as an organization better limit unnecessary workplace stress and managers are a key, you know, point of the stick to kind of get at that uh, issue. 
And as a manager, I was given many tools during the pandemic. I have to say SAP was really quite wonderful with us and providing us with a lot of areas for wellness, including, you know, yoga sessions by Zoom in the day or, you know, mindfulness sessions to help you focus on the positive. And they also provided us with some apps that we could use for, you know, meditation and sleep help, et cetera. I know that a lot of companies dove into that pool, just like SAP did. Do you have any thoughts around those particular apps and and how we're using them and, and what's going to happen to them? Because I see people using them less and less, but I know they're still there. It's a great point. So w- during the pandemic, obviously, there was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of stress. And you know, a lot of HR departments were focused on how can I get something to help my staff? And the easiest lift was definitely an app uh, to do some self-help. And there's over 10,000 of these wellness apps on the market now. Um, Some of them are very, very good. And the best ones have some academic rigor to them. So they've been analyzed to see that, you know, if you do these things, it's actually going to improve your mental health. But then there's a lot of players that are pure technology and they just have thrown things out there with a lot of marketing around how valuable they're going to be. So it's been a real challenge for organizations to navigate this marketplace because there's so many players. uh, Everyone's promising, you know, kind of high lofty uh, objectives. And after a couple of years, we're now seeing they may not have hit those targets. So, uh, you know, we, we had the great, great resignation. I call it the, the great justification now where everyone is now saying, OK, I've got all these apps. You know, which ones do I keep? Which ones do I don't need anymore? Um, how do I justify this expense that I've, I've put out there? And so the key thing, like anything, if you're going to put a system in place, you want to test that it actually is demonstrating value. And I think a lot of people just threw these apps at people without kind of seeing how valuable they're going to be or even having a methodology to assess their success. So so I think we're seeing a lot of organizations kind of reevaluate, you know, what are the, the tools that are most useful for their employees and which are having the best effect, and can they start to demonstrate that this is actually having an impact positively on their employees? I think the other thing is is that it's always a multifactorial effort. You know, there's no self help help the, the app that's going to fix you know everybody. You're going to need different layers of support. So employee assistance programs, EAP programs, obviously very prominent with organizations, and that's getting access to counselors, getting access to professionals that can provide the next layer of support. And not surprisingly, we're shorthanded on on um, consultants, right? So there's there's very very you know few out there for the large masses of people that need it, and that's also why the digital tools became so popular because you couldn't see a counselor. Well, maybe you know the app can fill that gap. Yeah, so there's a real justification process now going on. You know, is this app useful? Can you demonstrate a value? Is it academically and research driven or is it just, you know, something that someone slapped together? I think all those things people are are looking at very closely now. So you've introduced me to a concept called hero and it relates to the psychological capital. Could you explain that to our listeners further and kind of talk about how it relates to productivity and workforce resilience? 
Yeah, I mean, this this is actually uh, not a new concept. Uh, it's been around for many years, and it's been researched heavily within the psychology practice and also in um, organizational behavior, looking at the workplace, how people work in the workplace. And it's really very much tied to the resilience and the effectiveness of employee productivity. And HERO stands for uh, H is the a level of hope people have. So if, if you're hopeful of the future, if you're looking forward in the future, and they've actually done you know a whole bunch of questionnaires on this, if you score high in hope, that's a good thing. E stands for efficacy. So how efficient are you in what you're doing? And this is a, a big issue too with a lot of you know new people coming into the workplace how efficient you are in managing your time is very, very, very important because you really can stress yourself out if you're if you're not efficient and suddenly you're you're not managing deadlines well. And then R is resilience. So your level of being able to adapt to the, you know, and, and adjust to the punches that can match you and deal with those. And then O is optimism. So ultimately how optimistic are you that hey, this is, a, this is a good thing I'm doing. It's a good job I'm in. I'm happy where I am. I'm optimistic. And so those, those four components can create a score, which kind of give a, a holistic view of the psychological capital. So basically a lot like emotional capital or even financial capital, right? You want to store as much as you can and keep saving as much as you can so that when when things hit you, you're going to be much more resilient. So if you've got employee base that's high in their psychological capital, they're going to be much more responsive and effective in dealing with incidents as opposed to ones that are lower. So it's it's a as I say, it's it's a very common you know psychological concept uh, in the workplace. It's always been there. Uh, again, it's kind of coming back into the spotlight again as there's been this focus uh, on mental health. Yeah. So it sounds like this might be a key in helping to build your workforce resiliency, but are there other pieces that you would recommend from a strategy perspective to organizations on how they can build that resiliency, reduce the stress, maybe even lessen that burnout that's happening within their workforce? Well, it's it's a great and important point. I was speaking to a professor in this area recently, and he was asked to go to an automotive factory. And he says, look, my staff are all stressed out. They're all anxious. You know, we're having, you know, people threatening in the workplace. It's just pretty disruptive. Can you give them a talk? They need a talk on, you know, mental health. And he said, fine, happy to do that. So he goes to the factory and he says, by the way, can I have a tour? And the guy says, yeah, we'll have a tour. And they looked at the assembly line and it was a mess. And he said, look, I can give you a talk, but your problem is your assembly line. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you could fix if you could fix your assembly line, guess what? A lot of the stress your employees are having are going to go away. So business processes is a key thing for people's stress. If they're doing, you know, tasks that don't make sense, if there's lots of roadblocks in what they're doing, it increases their stress. If their manager's not giving them appropriate timeline. So really all the day-to-day -day type work-related activities, there's a great opportunity for organizations to look at their processes and improve them. And I always talk about on the medical side, healthcare is, you know, one of the top, you know, stress organizations in the world. And at our, our company, when I first started, you know, there were two doctors in China, you know, covering on call. 
So I was either on one night or off, but then backing up the other guy the second night. And I knew that every two to three months, if I didn't take a break, I would completely burn out. And so the company realized that, you know what, one and two doesn't work. And so now they added five doctors. So now it was one in five. And it took them took uh, us about, you know, uh, a number of years to finally go to a follow the sun process where now no one does on call at night. They just do daytime, but they follow the sun. So if someone's in, you know, sick at night in the U.S., the call goes to Asia when it's their daytime. And that's in- incredibly improved the resiliency of our medical team. We don't have people quitting and burning out as much. So I think every company needs to look at their internal process, see what can they do to to, to improve. And some of these things will take time, but they are really key. Yeah. It's that idea of getting to the root of the problem, not just looking at the symptoms of the problem and trying to solve the symptom. Um, So I, I appreciate that particular piece. I know I promised people that I would get into duty of care. So I'm going to jump there because we've talked a little bit about now how to foundationally set your employees. And and I know um, we recently had a survey that we participated with in Wakefield Research that said over 53% of people in the last three months had changed accommodations because they didn't feel safe. They also feel that travel is really a cornerstone of their career advancement. So they will not turn it down, even at great personal cost to them emotionally or physically. And we think always about natural disasters, but we're really not thinking about being a female or being in a minority group. They're so vulnerable now and and things have escalated to such a point worldwide. It's not just the US, it's everywhere. So how do we expand that duty of care mentality and the mitigation of risk that our travelers are facing so they feel less stress and less pressure when they're traveling? Yeah, I think it comes down to really everything that relates to understanding your situation. So the more information you have and knowledge, the less anxious you're going to be. Uh, It's the unknown that often will really throw people. So if you know the environment you're going into, you know the risks that are there, you know how to try to mitigate those risks, you know what to do. If there is a problem, you've got a backup plan your underlying stress is going to be much less because you've got a plan in place. And I think, you know, we are seeing, I was just asked by a major organization to look at their calls to our center for security issues. And 20% of those calls were related to lost and stolen items, stolen passports, stolen. So it's, it's not uncommon, but a lot of these things are potentially you can do something about these things, you know, the way the way you present yourself in different environments, the way you're really focused on, you know, not putting yourself uh, into a compromising situations, uh, all of those kind of security related issues, you know, you can be trained to be really smart in how you don't put yourself into a position where someone potentially might rob you. So those things I think are really important and, and valuable is getting as much advanced uh, knowledge of where you're going and having a plan if something goes wrong. Now you're going to lose things, you know, <laughs> that's just the way yeah. the way it is, but having a plan to know, okay, if I lose my passport, what do I do? Right? What's what is the steps that I need to take? 
And also, if I've got someone who can help me, it's going to make it much more efficient for me to get home and turn around. So knowledge is really the, the, the gold standard and training. It's so funny going back to travel again, particularly if you haven't done it for a while, you assume that it's, it's, it's uh, easy and you'll like getting back on a bike. But it's some, you know, it does take a little bit more time and effort to really refocus again that, okay, you know, I'm carrying, what am I carrying with me? You know, where am I going? What am I doing? What hotel do I stay at? Do I really know what neighborhood this is? All that type of stuff is now comes back into our consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, It's funny you say that because I've been on a number of business trips and the first few were just brutal. And I used to travel all the time, but you know, and, and it's silly little things like I got to a place and I didn't have my hairbrush. I got to another place and I forgot to bring underwear. It's one of those things where I was even just focusing on the internal parts of it. But as I started thinking in a broader sense, to your point, you lose things. I used to have a file of all my my passport, my license, and all the credit cards that I had. And I would take it with me, paper-based, so that if anything got lost, and I pulled it the last time, and I realized it was all out of date nothing matched what I carried in my pocket now. So just even that little bit of preparation is really huge. And carrying like my medical card that shows all the different, you know, in all the different immunizations I've had around tetanus and everything else. I had totally forgotten about that. Now I have it pushed in with my, with my passport. So I, I know where these things are, but man, I totally forgot about it during, you know, during non-travel time it's absolutely right i mean we were so if we were traveling during covid we were so focused on a mask getting our vaccination status you know put in place we've forgotten some of the basics sometimes and i think that uh yeah so it's it's re-educating people again it's not assuming that everybody as i say the the road warriors still need to um, re-educate themselves you're and you're absolutely right things go out of date you make assumptions that are wrong and the places we're traveling to have changed. You know, I mean, I think, you know, we're, we're seeing a quite a dynamic world today. We've seen, you know, if you want to get into the whole area of climate change and, and just all the storms and floods and wildfires and smoke, you know, things are happening, it seems more frequently and meaning that you need to have these additional uh, preparatory items in place. And I think it might mean that, you know, in the future, we're always going to carry, you know, a mask with us wherever we go. Because it might not be a contagious disease, but it could be smoke from a forest fire that happened on the East Coast just recently. So, So I think all of these things now make our kit that we take with us even more important, you know, and having that situational awareness is really key. Yeah. So... One of the great things that happened in the pandemic, and I know a lot of people think, how could anything great have happened during that time? But I think one of the things that really struck me was the ability to hire people who maybe weren't at the top of the list for hiring previously because of some sort of disability or um, restriction that they had in how they worked. But we could then accommodate them in their own spaces. As we go back to offices, as we go back to travel, as I mentioned earlier, most people feel that travel is a cornerstone of their career advancement. So 
these people are not going to turn down the opportunity to travel, but it's a lot more difficult for them to travel. We have employees who are facing not only physical, but emotional challenges. How do we support them when they go out to travel for work? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, people with uh, any kind of disability, and and again, it, it may be a chronic disability, or it might just be a recent incident that needs to be supported. I think all of those things, it, it's really critical that organizations have a place to go to that can help them, you know, accommodate those persons so that they can travel safely and securely with whatever disability that they have. And there's really not an excuse, you know, anymore to say, you know, no. Now, there might be certain locations where it's really impractical. I mean, if you're going in the middle of the jungle, those types of things. But if for the most part, you know, there are very effective ways to safely get people with, with multiple dis- types of disabilities where to get to where they need to go very effectively. Now, it's some, it may relate to, you know, getting special clearance on an aircraft, which is all, all possible through, through metaforms and, and uh, getting access through uh, approval process uh, through the airlines. And that's where an assistance organization can help you with those types of things. If you need oxygen on a flight, that's also possible now. So all of these things are, are very doable and I think expected, right? That a company should, you know, be providing these services um, to their employees. And, and, you know, these, these employees are, are critical to their business operations. So it's a business critical issue to, to get them safely to get the work that they need to get done. So there's one thing that I've noticed while I've been traveling, and I am of the classic generation, I like to say. <laughs> I'm a little bit older than I was when I used to travel. So I have some things like that I think about. I actually, when I travel internationally now, I do need a day to really acclimate to the time difference and the stress of the travel, which I never used to need before. Is this a place where companies can look at policies to get a little more granular in how they address some of the constituents that they have within their organization who are traveling? A hundred percent. I think it's 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 really what, we, and we are seeing this already today, is that organizations are re-looking at their travel policies you know, it used to be, you know, if you're a senior vice president, you get a business class seat, you know, very much tied to your status as opposed to your um, requirements, your personal health requirements, right? And I think we're seeing more organizations tie it to their their health requirements and their specific needs. The jet lag is a real thing. It does affect people and it's a safety issue. So, you know, if you land, uh, you know, from a 12-hour flight and suddenly you're getting in a car and driving, I mean, that should be a no-no at this point in time. So there's some very specific, you know, and actually academically validated justification for, as you say, landing and spending some time adjusting to the climate uh, and the time zone uh, before you you start uh, your work and then returning as well. And so you can build these into your your travel, and it's really the travel risk policies. So we a lot of companies have travel policies, but not not as many have the the risk concept in there, which I, I think is very important because you've got you know real real factors there. Time zone is the obvious one, 
but you've got altitude, you've got people that don't realize they're flying to altitude that can have a major impact, you know, on them. You've got climate and temperature. So if you land and it's, uh, you know, 110 degrees, yes, there's people in the streets walking around there, but they are climatized, you're not. And that could have a major impact on your health. So these factors are, are obvious, they're there, there's data to support what you should do. And that's also where you'd want to have a corporate medical advisor to kind of help scope this with your team to ensure that you've got a policy that is, you know, academically validated and makes sense organizationally. So this really ties to how organizations would create a culture of preparedness around travel. So can we talk a little bit about that in building that type of risk mitigation as we look at preparing for travel? Yes. So uh, you brought up the term culture of health, and I, and this has become a little bit of a catchphrase within a lot of organizations. And it's, I think, the right way to go is the, the, the organizations um, need to build a culture of health. And there's been a lot of actual work on this now where they've they've evaluated companies that have a very strong culture of health and their actual stock prices are higher. So there's a, a direct you know, return on investment in, in, in health uh, and ensuring that your employees are healthy and that they're, you're maximizing their, their safety as well. It's a long process, depending on the maturity of your organization, the size of your organization, the kind of work you do. Obviously, if you're in a heavy industry where there's lots of risk, you know, you're probably ahead of the curve. If you're a white collar tech company, you know, this all this may be all new uh, to you as an organization. But it's really understanding the employee, the employee health issues and the employee profile and then the destination where they're going. So linking those two things together and assessing the relative risk of their at their destination. And, you know, it's multifactorial, the risk. It's not just, you know, security risks and, you know, uh, riots and robberies, but there's health risks, you know, around infectious diseases and vaccinations that you need. So all of those things factor together to make the best program. And we we do see companies during COVID had strong compliance programs. Like if you wanted to fly, you had to meet a certain compliance requirement, you know, fill out a questionnaire or complete a questionnaire. And so we think that those types of compliances should continue because you want, as an organization, you want to ensure that you are meeting your duty of care obligations and your employees are, are following a process you know, that is is acceptable and, and demonstrates that duty of care, as I said. And we keep talking about duty of care and what falls on the organization. But the reality is this is a two-way street, right? There is some sort of obligation from the employee or the traveler to hold up their end of the travel bargain. And I know it's really hard sometimes because there are confidential things that you may not want to reveal about yourself. Maybe it's about your sexual preference. And so you don't want to be as transparent about it because you feel that something's going to happen. Or maybe, I mean, I've had this myself where I was pregnant and I didn't want to tell anybody until I reached a certain stage. But if I think about it traveling now, so many different states have different rulings and protections around the safety of pregnant women. It would be really important for me to tell somebody about that, even if I'm not feeling comfortable about it. So can we talk a little bit about what that obligation is for that traveler? 
Yeah, I mean, at Travelers, you know, as you absolutely said, it's a two-way street. There's only so much an organization can do. And the traveler, you know, still has that duty to ensure that they are looking after themselves uh, and ensuring that they are um, following the procedures and policies that the companies put in place. And, and they need to be aware that, as you said, if they fit into some category that might be discriminated against at their destination, they need to understand, you know, what those issues are. You know, you can argue and complain about it, but at the end of the day, you're landing in that country and in that city, and they're going to treat you the way that, that the, the way they do it, and you've got to adapt to that. So I think it's, you know, uh, the organization's job, you know, to to give give that information and make it available, and the employee's job to ensure that they're, you know, that they understand those risks and they're doing their best to try to mitigate those. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Typically, what I like to do at the end is have three takeaways that have struck me within this. And so please, I want to review these with you. And if you have anything additional you want to add, or you can even tell me, well, that's not the most important thing you should have taken away. It's really this. I'm perfectly open to that, too. Um, But the first thing that I wanted to think about was that psychological capital discussion around The idea of looking at everything in a holistic fashion to help your employees manage stress, that that conversation around the process on the auto floor, on the manufacturing floor was really, it hit me hard because I don't always think as a manager about the full holistic piece of it. So that to me is a huge takeaway for me on how I manage my team. Yeah, I think I think it's really important. It's it's something that organizations don't necessarily want to hear <laughs> because mm-hmm. you want you don't want to hear that you don't you're not managing, you know, the process well. It's easier to to pass it off to HR. But look, I think that's also where really as you said, you you brought up the term root cause. I mean, root cause analysis, this this is what it's about, right? You want to treat the you know, treat the disease as opposed to the symptoms like you said. And I think uh there are some obvious opportunities where you can make a major impact on the, the mental health of your organization just by looking at your procedures and processes. I often think about this as the whole idea of that vein of existence of mine of, well, we've always done it this way and it's been successful, but has it really I mean, really, is it just because people didn't complain about it before? Is that why it was so successful? So it's a really great reminder to me to look at that holistically. The other piece that we talked about was just one that we talked about recently. We all talk about duty of care, but there's a certain amount of responsibility and obligation that employees have to be able to be situationally and risk aware and to let their organizations know how they can support them in the same way that we as employees expect the organization to support us. Yeah, look, I think the the key thing here is, uh, as you say, it's a two-way street. And the concept that uh, organizations use is duty of loyalty, which is, you know, in essence, the employee's responsibility to their organization. So they need to be kind of loyal to, you know, to what the organization is trying to promote. And it's that they're part of the bargain. And I think that's really important because, you know, if you're if you have a traveler that doesn't believe and doesn't follow it, 
then you know you're out of alignment, right? And you might be dealing with a significant issue if things go wrong for that individual. And and I think that's something that is important that management would have to deal with and escalate to if there's that misalignment. But yeah, and, and I think we have a new, we've got a new workforce now, right? I mean, it's a younger workforce. They have different different views of the world, different styles of work, and we're we're learning to adapt to that new workforce. Uh, and they have, you know, uh, very strong opinions about what they they need to be able to do their job. And that is also changing what we need to offer as well. The final thing I took away was this great phrase that you have, the great justification, that idea that you need to make sure that whatever you're doing has metrics and ability to be measured for success or even failure so that it helps you actually do what you hope to do. It seems simple, yet it seems to be missing in a lot of these wellness programs. It's hard. And I think that's why it's it's difficult is it's not an easy thing to do. And there's lots of different metrics that you can look at. I mean, a lot of the wellness related technologies are looking at claims and healthcare claims because that's a big issue, obviously, in the U.S. So if you can see your healthcare claims go down, then that's a good news story. But in a lot of the data that we look at is once you implement a program, uh, and people know about it, guess what? Claims go up because now they know that they can access <laughs> the service. So <laughs> you actually see an increase in claims before you start to see the decrease. So you need to know kind of what to measure. And then, you know, ultimately, you know, if it's if it's satisfaction of your employees, then you're going to have to find a way to canvas them, you know, confidentially and securely. And, and then that's an issue of, of trust. Uh, amongst your your employees that your your company is not going to share that information. So it's not an easy thing to do, but I think it's important because with any any you know program, you want to say what does success look like? And look, success might be that you know thirty five percent of my staff download the app and that and you're happy with that and you that's your target. But at least you have something you know documented that you can track. Well. I know we have to end this. I really wish we didn't because I could talk for a long time about this topic, but I want to thank you so much for being here today and sharing your insights with us. We really do appreciate it. No, my pleasure. I think it's it's a, it's a really an important topic. And as we get back to travel and a lot of organizations are not fully back yet, so they're still dabbling in getting back there. And it's a great opportunity to relook at their policies and procedures and improve them because it, it's a it's a win-win for everybody. Absolutely. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode of the SAP Concur Conversations podcast. To hear more exclusive insights and interviews from the world of business travel, expense, and invoice processing, be sure to subscribe and listen wherever you find your podcasts. And please join us again for our next SAP Concur Conversations.